This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's also great to be joined on the line from Sydney, Jacob Boehm, who is the uh, Artistic Director of Yurimboy First Nations Arts Festival. Jacob, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm... I always find today a challenging and difficult day because I know that some people want to celebrate all the things they think are good about Australia. I find it mm. personally difficult to celebrate on a day that, to me, represents dispossession. Um, for, yeah. uh, as uh, an Indigenous Australian, before we begin to talk about Boy, why do you think it's important to acknowledge today rather than celebrate today? Well, I think for most of us, um, Indigenous Australians, uh, the one thing today brings up is, well, a chance to acknowledge our ancestors, our family, the resilience, the courage, the love and the hope that has continued um, to see our survival on this land for the last 229 years. Um, if anything, that's a way to... I suppose a, a hopeful way to remember it does bring about memories of well okay 229 years ago was the start of you know genocide of our culture um which had lasting effects and not and still does even today so you know to have flags and and balloons and you know, celebrations and bands out in the harbour and <laughs> in the middle of the in the middle of the city and a, and a big party. It's all sort of a bit. Uh, it's a bit strange. I have to agree. I find it strange myself. So I, I I can only perhaps begin to imagine what it must be like for you and other members of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, um, also known as First Nations communities. It's a phrase that I initially associate with um, uh, kind of Canadian and well North American uh, culture generally. Why yeah. is it a valuable term for you? Why and why do you think it's starting to be used more here in Australia? I think. Um I suppose because we are becoming more and more uh, connected globally. Uh, Indigenous, First Nations, First Peoples, whatever you want to call yourself, and it is up to the individual to identify how they want to be, be called or what they want to refer to themselves as. First Nations, I think, for me, encompasses the fact that there is a, a growing global alliance of First Nations peoples. Um, which you will see in May, because there's a lot of mob coming. <laughs> so you, you're bringing First Nations people from uh, what around Australia and around the world to Melbourne. Yes, yeah. So uh, and Boy, yeah, is a gathering of international First Nations people. It's uh, so we get to present work, we get to have dialogue, we get to have dialogue with each other and about the sector and about where we want to head to, but it's also about um, having broader conversations with the Melbourne communities um, and bringing them in on where we're at and where we're heading. Now, yeah, so the... we've got visitors from all over Oz, um, a big focus on Victorian artists as well, plus we've got mob coming from Taiwan, Canada, the US, uh, New Zealand, Pacific Islands, uh, Wales, uh, Finland, yeah. 
It sounds like it's going to be a really intriguing gathering and one which will not only, as you say, provide connections internationally and and strengthen Mm. those uh, conversations that are happening around the globe, but allow Melbournians and Victorians from all walks of life to reflect on the history of the land they live upon and to be reminded that here in Victoria and indeed around the globe, there are that our First Nations people are living cultures. Well, exactly. We're still here and we always will be. Um, and Nuremboy is a local Melbourne word, so it's a, a shared language word between the Boon and the Woiwurrung, which means tomorrow. So the idea of that is that you know, we all do. Regardless of your your culture or your race, we all carry the past. And particularly here, yesterday is very present. Um, not more so than today. Um, we all carry the past with us today, but when we gather today, what are we going to do together looking forward into our future? Hence, you're in boy tomorrow. Now, I understand that one of the events that's going to be happening at Yurimboy, uh and the full program uh, will be announced later in the year, the festival itself happening in May. So I'll be delighted to have you back on the show once the full program is out. But I understand yeah. you're looking for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to get involved in a Black Critics program. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, we've partnered with uh, the Guardian Masterclasses Australia um, and they're running a series of... Uh, masterclasses in critical review uh, for black writers who would like to develop their skills or further their skills um, so that we have you know we've, we've built up some capacity in that area where we can provide for not only for our own mob but for you know the broader audience um, critical review of black work with black voices critiquing that work um, there are some things I mean there are a lot of great reviewers out there um, you're one of them um, and they provide wonderful wonderful critique on our work but often a lot of the meaning a lot of the, the material the content sometimes gets glazed over there's not enough um, what's the right word maybe cultural competency to be able to look at a black fellow's work and go, ah, that's what that means. Like, you know, I've just had a whole, you know, I've just done a season of Blood on the Dance Floor here in Sydney and black fellows were looking at the um, the imagery behind me and could completely get what the c- cultural connection was, why that was there at that time, whereas it kind of went over the heads of most of the non-Indigenous people in the audience. And that's why we're building it, so that we have some kind of cultural competency in critical review. And Rather than having to see a review that says inspiring, this is um, so spiritual, this is, you know, I mean, there's a lot of old tropes that are used in, in critiquing black work, and it, that's been going on for a very long time. Yeah. So an oppor- we, need to be more, we need to be more rigorous with each other. Yeah, an mm. opportunity then to... Uh, which I think is a really valuable and important one. It's certainly for me... uh, I'm nervous about critiquing work from any culture or any uh, art form that I'm not 
intimate with and familiar with. So kind of, yeah, as you say, kind of um, train, training up your own mob to write informed, critical discussion about the work being created will be of lasting significance. I also wanted to let people know that I understand there's a call out for artists, performers and cultural groups who are interested in in presenting work in a, uh, a one-day event that's going to be happening as part of Year and Boy. Ah, uh, yes, Baring Yannabal, another local word um, or local words that mean translate to we all walk the path. Um, Arnie Faye Muir at uh, Victorian Aboriginal Corporation of Languages is the one that came up with that one. Um, pardon me. Yeah, Baring Yannabal is our citywide blackout. It's um, a call out to artists, groups, um, collectives who have an idea, so, you know, like we're placing our artists, taking them out of the spaces, out of the venues and placing them throughout the street over one day. So you get a map and you go on a little bit of a treasure hunt. You know, you might want to head down to Hardware Lane to see a dance performance at two o'clock and whoop, yep, there you go, you've got to be back at Burke Street Mall to see a concert and then run off down to Spring Street to see Black Riders doing something. You know, it's one of those kind of get set, go, have a little treasure hunt around the city and it'll be First Nations work. Um, experimental, um, small, intimate, big, all kinds of stuff. There's been some really, really interesting um, pictures so far. Like you just give people the permission to dream outside the box and they just go wild. It's awesome. Fantastic. Uh, the full festival program will be launched in, what, a month or so? Yeah, we'll be launching mid-February, mid-February, mid-March. Mid-March, okay, and the festival itself running from the 5th to the 14th of May 2007. It's the Yurimboy First Nations Arts Festival. Obviously, uh, the launch, uh, as Jacob's just said, a a few months away yet, but we thought it'd be good to give you a teaser today to to pencil in those dates, the 5th to the 14th of May in your calendar, and to think about the work that's coming up, and in particular, um, uh, if uh, you or people you know you think would be good to get involved with the Black Critics program, for example, or uh, Baring Yannabal, then uh, check out the website, uh, yearamboy.net.au. That's Y-I-R-R-A-M-B-O-I, yearamboy.net.au. There's also, can I just add, there's also just been a call-out released um, for dancers, and this is for all dancers, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, who want to work with, we have a guest artist, a Yupik artist from Alaska coming called Emily Johnson, and Arts House will be presenting her, and there's just been a call-out for dancers who would like to work with Emily in the performance during Boy. so go and check out Arts House or um, Boy Facebook page, and there's a whole bunch of details. Fantastic. About how to, you know, uh, load an expression of interest. Great. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And uh, I'll see you back in Melbourne at some stage. Yes, right now I'm just waiting for the taxi and I'll be off. <laughs> <laughs> All the best, mate. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The Midsummer Festival is on at the Melbourne, at the Melbourne, at the moment. It's Melbourne's queer cultural festival and running through until the 5th of February. A range of events around town coming up in about half an hour. We're going to find out all about I Am My Own Wife. 
at 45 downstairs. But before that, I'm joined right now in the studio by director Daniel Lamon, who's directing Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens at the Mechanics Institute in Brunswick as part of Midsummer. Daniel, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Like, oh, it's been a while since I've had you on the show, I think. It has. I can't actually remember the last time I was here. It's been a few years, I think. Yeah. Well, the first couple of shows of yours I saw were all about dark, twisted, angry young men. You've kind of moved away from that to a degree, but this seems to be another fairly dark show. Yes, dark, twisty, angry young men I've moved away from, but dark and twisty I don't think I'll ever quite move away from. Uh, so this is a play that was written at the height of the AIDS crisis yes. in America in, what, the late 80s? 1989. So it was written just around the same time that the Names Project AIDS quilt was unveiled as a kind of response to the quilt. So the idea of the show is that it's a series of about 37 monologues and 10 songs, I think, all relating to different stories around the crisis. Uh, using the quilt as a source of inspiration. We're not quite sure whether or not the stories in the show are true stories. Certainly there are elements of a lot of them that we recognise as being from particular people's stories. But yeah, it's, so it's, it doesn't really have a narrative. It's more kind of kind of symphony of voices and song around the idea of the voices of the dead, of those that had passed by that point. Now, some people might say the AIDS crisis is over. Why is this play still relevant? I would acknowledge the fact that HIV is still an issue for many people, Mm. not just in Australia, but especially around the world. So it's an ongoing crisis uh, just because it's, in some people's eyes, it's now HIV AIDS is now a manageable chronic condition. Mm. Um, people are still getting infected. It's still an issue. Why did you want to direct this play? Well, that was a big question for me because it was so specifically about the United States and that very specific time. uh, I kind of had to interrogate for myself, why did I think it needed to come back in 2017? And the clue that I stuck with was to look back at the quilt itself and work out what was the role of the quilt. And as much as it was an act of memorial, it was also an act of protest around the fact that the United States government were continuously not acknowledging that there was a major crisis on their hands. And when we looked at it from that perspective, suddenly it went from being a piece about the AIDS crisis in the United States and more became about a government committing criminal negligence against its citizens that required its help. Uh, you know, minorities, essentially, that were kind of being ignored because of their minority status by their government because they were just deemed... You know, people they didn't want to deal with. So when we looked at it from that perspective, suddenly we found a lot of relevance for things that are happening not only in the United States now, certainly in the last few days, but what's been happening in Australia for the past few years as well. And that was the stuff we started to latch on, was less about, as much about the virus itself, but also about all the things that happened because of the virus and the response that the government had to it at the time. So in many ways, this is a living, breathing protest. Yes. Yeah. We definitely think about it in that sense. And, you know, in the show was intended as, when it was written in 1989, it was written as a concert production for a fundraiser. So it was never intended as a theatrical production and we've had to kind of take the puzzle pieces of it and put it back together in a way that make it theatrically exciting for 2017, but also that we can kind of emphasise those elements of it as well. So yeah, it's been tricky, but it's been exciting. I can understand. Now, I understand also that you're working with quite a large cast on this production. Yes, there are nine actors, four singers and two musicians. 
what is it with you and large casts of late? I just really like a lot of people on stage. I feel like it's something that you never really get to see. There was one of the neon shows a few years ago from Arthur. I can't remember what it was called, but when they had the cast of about 20 or 30 teenagers on stage, I remember finding that a really moving, powerful sight because it's not something that because of money and because of uh, resources, you don't get to see very often. And so, and we could have done this show with less actors and they would have had, you know, six, seven, eight monologues each. But I liked the idea of going with a large number on stage, A, because it's exciting and unusual and B, because it helps to emulate the scope of what it is that we're dealing with. I guess I tend to go towards large cast shows because I tend to like dealing with very big ideas. But you also uh, have a bit of a reputation for either not solo shows, but very pared back, stripped back shows. So uh, Masterclass, for example, which does have a, a number of characters in it, but is predominantly a solo show with a, yes. uh, some people around the edges. Ryan, which you did uh, in 2015 at the La Mama Courthouse, which was a solo show. Mm-hmm. So it, I get the feeling you kind of you want extremes, either kind of one person on stage or a, a chorus, essentially. Pretty much. But, I mean, the, the great thing about... Because I have done a lot of solo works, but all of them have also been enormous in their emotional and thematic scope. And so it's then about going, well, if you've got a singular person on stage and that's that one voice seems the most appropriate voice to be able to say what this production needs to say, but then using all the other elements around them to make it feel like it's enormous. So with Ryan, we isolated um, Ryan in this very small cell, but gave the sense of enormous negative space around him to make it feel like the show was much more epic than it actually was. Um, And usually pairing back things, because I don't like rubbish on stage that I don't see the point of. So stripping everything back is the first thing I go to. The interesting thing with Elegies has been it was written to be stripped back. So myself and the design team have gone, well, what else can we do with it? How can we actually expand it and use the elements of design, particularly elements that weren't available in 1989, like audiovisuals and you know advanced lighting and having a dedicated space to actually put more stuff onto the text to amplify it. So, it's, yeah, that's been an interesting, ex- interesting exercise in the opposite for me. Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens is the name of the show that we're discussing on from the 1st to the 4th of February as part of the Midsummer Festival at the Mechanics Institute in Brunswick. Daniel, why is it important to have a queer festival like Midsummer? We live in an era in which um, uh, you and your boyfriend can walk hand in hand down Swanson Street and hopefully not get spat on or beaten up. Hopefully. Um, It's still a possibility, but culture is evolving. Mm. Why do we still need Midsummer? Why do we need a queer-specific festival when, let's face it, half the entertainment and theatre industry in this country is made up of uh, gay men, lesbians, bisexual, transgendered people, etc.? That's a good question. I think it's... I think a festival like Midsummer is is going to be necessary until the day where all of a sudden queer art is not special, if you get what I mean, that it's that it, it doesn't just become a kind of sub-genre in itself, where all of a sudden something can be as easily connectable to an audience across a wide range of demographics, backgrounds, religions, cultures. So I think it allows a kind of melting pot for artists who specifically want to create queer work to be able to do it in the parameters that are safe, where audiences are going to respond to it and to where it can be supported. 
until the day where we don't have to worry about that. You have, you know, it's, it, you, can, you can see the kind of democracy of that happening a little bit more in film necessarily than in theatre with films like Carol or Moonlight that are jumping the barriers of being classified as queer art. Like I saw, I saw Moonlight a few weeks ago and that almost felt like a strange thing to call it because it's so humanly enormous. So I think it's until the day where we don't have to classify it as queer I feel like Midsummer will be necessary until that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, that you've raised another point uh, that I wanted to, to pick up on. You adore cinema as an art I form. I do. Um, are you, by, by directing theatre, are you essentially just a frustrated filmmaker who, or do, do you also passionately love theatre as well, but film is always that thing that you love even more off in the distance yeah i i'm i'm not a frustrated filmmaker at all i film i have to be honest is my favorite medium i do tend to love it more than theater i find cinema satisfies me more than theater does sometimes though when a great production comes along like the Maltas's picnic of hanging rock exceeds my expectations of what film or theater can do but no i i guess one of my favorite things about being a theatre director is that I'm, take, I'm able to take all of the principles that I love about cinema and try and apply them to theatre. So I, mean, I, I didn't, when I first started directing, no one had taught me how to do it. I just innately picked up skills as I went along, but I realised that I didn't pick them up from acting and I didn't pick them up from watching theatre because I grew up in a country town in Queensland and didn't have theatre to watch. I realised I'd learned how to direct by watching Disney films and discovering Kubrick and Fincher and realising the principles of rhythm and tempo and tone that, you know, for me, lighting is editing and all that kind of stuff. So, no, I guess I satisfy what would be my, you know, Want, if I wanted to be a filmmaker, I've satisfied that by making theatre. I've always told that the theatre that I make is strangely cinematic, so I guess I have no desire to make film at this stage. I quite like just putting people on stage and seeing what happens and watching things go wrong. <laughs> well, hopefully things won't be going wrong in Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens. You mentioned rhythm and tone. Given that this is from 1989, mm. I'm interested in the musical content yes. of it as well. Uh, have is there new music being composed for the show, updated versions of the songs, or are you trying to capture a moment in time? It's more updating was definitely necessary with the songs. The the, po- the monologues are written in a poetic style, a kind of not quite beat poetic style, but something similar to that kind, that style. Uh, and they're all are quite raw and honest. The songs that were possessed a very strong quality of the 1980s kind of musical theatre ballads quality that in 2017 didn't quite sit so they're more updated versions of the songs to go how do we match them in terms of orchestration so Kellyanne Kimber the uh, musical director has kind of morphed the songs into something that sounds a bit more contemporary uh, we, it, we don't want to necessarily place the production definitely within the 1980s it says that it's set in the United States in 1989 and that's where we leave it there's no accents there's not really any strong 80s costumes we're kind of leaving that as given and then moving on from it so it's been interesting because as much as i've had music in almost every single show i've directed this is the first time i've worked with an almost musical form so the songs functioning as they would within a musical and that's been an interesting challenge for me to navigate how do i with a very strict theater background and never having experience with musicals navigate directing that style it's been really really exciting and it's you know it's quite thrilling when 
you know, you've had a few monologues and all of a sudden the piano starts and someone starts singing and you're just like, oh, this is wonderful. Look at this. There's someone standing on stage singing. I felt the same in Masterclass with the opera singers where all of a sudden this person would open their mouth and the most sublime sound would come out of it. So, yeah, we, yeah we've had, there's been a bit of updating that's had to happen because we didn't want it to just be a museum piece. We wanted it to feel contemporary and immediate. Uh, so, yeah, that's been fun and another tricky part of doing it. Elegies for Angels, Punks and Raging Queens, which grew out of uh, the AIDS quilt and the inattention of the Reagan-era government to the AIDS crisis that was happening in America, uh, is on from the 1st till the 4th of February at 8pm. Uh, uh, 1st to the 5th of February. First did of I write the... F- you did? The- oh, damn. It's the 5th. Sorry. That's okay. The 1st to the 5th of February at 8pm uh, with a Sunday and Saturday matinee at 3pm. Yes. Uh, at the Mechanics Institute. Institute in Brunswick, which is on the corner of Glen Lyon and Sydney Road. Yes, that's right. Uh, uh, tickets 37.50, concession bookings via midsummer.org.au and Midsummer Festival is running through until the 5th of February. Daniel Lemon, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Richard. We began the show by talking about the fact that today, uh, for some, is a day of celebration. For many others, it is a day of mourning. It's a day of commemoration. Uh, Australia Day is a myth in this country that uh, has taken on almost uh, sacred status. And when you challenge myths, there's a bit of a backlash. Uh, Something that I suspect my next guest, artist Amy Spears, may be uh, interested in talking about. Amy is an artist whose work is socially engaged and participatory and has just recently launched a campaign called Miranda Must Go, which is aimed at demythologising Hanging Rock. Uh, so, Amy, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me on the show, Richard. A very great pleasure. Now, as soon as I heard about this campaign, it resonated with me because I know people who think that the story Picnic at Hanging Rock was actually true. They, they, It has become so all-pervasive, this myth of white girls going missing in the rugged and dangerous Australian landscape, that it has taken on the resonance of national mythology, even though it's a work of fiction. And at the same time, it has erased, or shall we say whitewashed, the Indigenous history of Hanging Rock. And this is what your campaign is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose, I mean, to give some context, I've spent the last four years sort of doing a PhD on um, sort of socially engaged art, but uh, my focus for the practice-based component was doing something out at Hanging Rock. And um, so over the years I've been at the Rock sort of interviewing visitors and just asking them what their sort of associations are with the place. And not surprisingly, Miranda and Picnic at Hanging Rock comes up a lot. And and, uh, and then I just started asking this quite direct question. Okay, so what do you guys know about, um, you know, the Aboriginal history of Hanging Rock? And um, and you'd get these, like, really earnest responses where people say, oh, actually, I don't know anything. That's that's awkward. And, and you know, I just started noticing that this was a response, not just from visitors, but locals in the area. And, you know, I kind of was interested in this anxiety where there was a desire to know, but they were kind of like, oh, as an afterthought, I don't know anything you know it's interesting whose country is uh, hanging rock situated in okay so this is this is where it becomes complex so um hanging rock is on the border of three tribal groups so the Wurundjeri, the tangarong and the jajarong and uh some will tell you that 
uh, Hangi Rock as neutral territory and um, it was an intertribal uh, ceremonial meeting place for all three groups. Um, and then uh, some other people will tell you that Wurundjeri people have the custodianship and, um, and it's their, their country. So at the moment, you know, like basically what's fascinating to me is because colonial uh, because of colonial dispossession those three groups have fragmented understanding of what their their kind of stories are in that place and until they uh, there's a lot of resources thrown at them to sort of recover that sort of information and work it out amongst themselves we're left in this impasse where um you know, the only thing you can really point to is this negative space where stories and knowledge seems to be missing. And, um, and you know, that's, that's because of, of what white settlers did in that area. Now, one of the things that f- resonated for me with uh, your campaign, uh, and people can find out more information at www.mirandamustgo.info, uh, is that the myth of... Uh, white people vanishing in Australia is so deep-rooted. Massacres were um, began down in Gippsland, where I grew up. Um, massacres in the 1800s that were launched because of a pervasive myth that um, the blacks had kidnapped a white woman and we have to rescue her. Um, and there was there's no hint that that was based in fact at all. It was a myth then mm-hmm. and today we still have the echo of that myth which is a party of schoolgirls, white schoolgirls in kind of drift through the landscape and vanish at Hanging Rock uh, from a book written in the 60s and a film in the 70s. It's So those kind of historical echoes still have kind of, they still have us in their grip. They still have a hold over white Australia. Why do you think that myth, that the white girl missing in the, in the, in the bush has become such a resonant cultural image in Australia? There's a really interesting book by uh, cultural theorist Elspeth Tilly. It's called White Vanishing, Rethinking the Lost in the Bush Myth, where she talks a lot about the prevalence of this story, like the way that we keep telling these stories um, around Australia. And, I mean, uh, uh, you know... The story goes that um, basically white people are just very good at commemorating their own sufferings in the landscape. Uh, we're, we're obsessed and perhaps potentially anxious about our kind of uh, sense of belonging in the land. So, you know, these sorts of stories crop up when people become sort of like it's like we want to mark the landscape with our own stories. And, and it's our way of making ourselves sound like victims, you know, like, oh, we got lost in the bush and, uh, you know, we heroically struggled. And and I think, you know, so someone like Tilly will say that, um, you know, this, this, this myth is about installing itself as a kind of dominant national mythology where we get to sort of mark the landscape with our, you know, stories of our suffering. Yeah, it it's something that resonates with me on so many levels, such the Australian Gothic, for example, which we've seen reflected in artwork, in particularly in cinema. There's a, a real thread of uh, Australian Gothic cinema, and so much of what I what I see in that is a fear of the land, mm-hmm. a recognition that we don't belong on this land, mm-hmm. and um, shadows of the past. Uh, and for me, there's a real sense that the Australian Gothic has grown out of um, our refusal to collectively accept what happened in this country and what is still happening in terms of the echoes of dispossession and intergenerational trauma. But the, the, the massacre sites which, which dot the landscape um, 
The land is literally haunted, but we've turned that haunting into a gothic myth. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the kind of strongest part of, or the the, the strongest kind of um, aim of the Miranda Must Go campaign is to think about, like, why do you go to Hanging Rock and feel haunted? Like, people get all spooked out by, you know, going up the rock and calling out for Miranda. And, you know, they they, they say the place has this eerie presence, but they always associate it with this sort of, like, white uh, vanishing story. And, uh, you know, what I find sort of like like a kind of disgusting contradiction is that no one thinks about the traumas and the losses of uh, Abri- Aboriginal people would have experienced in the Macedon Ranges. Like we, we know for a fact that in the Macedon Ranges, um, the explorer Thomas, uh, Major Thomas Mitchell went through uh, in the 1830s um, and he noticed uh, smallpox scars on the Aboriginal people in that area. So we can kind of deduce that I think a large part of the population um, died from a smallpox outbreak um, but then then you had the gold rush and uh, land grabs uh, soon after Thomas Mitchell kind of declared that area this amazing kind of lush place and uh, so you, you would have had conflict with pastoralists you, you probably would have had instances of um, murder um, and then and then displacement uh, so uh, it, the, apparently the historical records tell us that uh, the surviving Aboriginal population in the in around Hanging Rock were removed and taken to Corrindirk uh, I think in 1863. Um, I heard Uncle Bill Nicholson uh, talking on summer breakfasters this morning about the, the the smallpox epidemic which almost wiped people out so yeah it's what conversations are you having with uh, uh, the aboriginal people of victoria about this campaign to what degree have uh, has the campaign uh, been consultative uh, rather than just something that you've launched off on your own bat yeah totally i mean that's a fantastic question and i think what's interesting is that um you know in the four years that i've been doing research down at hanging rock i noticed that uh, a lot of the locals around hanging rock who are kind of you know white progressive retirees who are really interested in finding out aboriginal information uh, will often will all often go to the various land councils and kind of demand sort of stories you know it's like can you please uh, tell this white Australian artist um, you know all your all the history that you have and um, you know my experience is like for instance I spoke to Annette Zebaris uh, yesterday on the phone who's um, uh, Wurundjeri elder who has some has some knowledge about hanging rock but she says things like you know like ultimately I mean I, I know three words in my my tradition language and when people turn to me and ask me like you know what's the aboriginal name for hanging rock I'm like I'm sorry it's lost you know and this and to me this is the signs of like of colonial dispossession like it's these gaps and silences that I think the campaign is trying to talk about it's like we need to face these moments of fragmentation and that's not to suggest at any moment that aboriginal culture is not resilient and doesn't survive it's just that we need to face that that these things are going to take time to sort of like uncover and so in that impasse rather than talking to Aboriginal people and demanding their history I think white Australians should be looking at our own history and talking about our colonial past and and thinking like quite like 
you know, sincerely about what's happened there. And and that's the campaign. Like, uh, in some ways, people have misreported it that I want to recover Aboriginal, sorry, um, Aboriginal history in the area. I think it's actually like, no, in the impasse of not having these stories uh, reclaimed at this point, that we need to like just spend some time looking at our own colonial history. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like more information about the Miranda Must Go campaign, www.mirandamustgo.info is the website, as I mentioned, and you'll find some background there. Uh, you can also donate to the campaign. Uh, there is a fundraising campaign connected to that, so uh, there's a donate button on the website if you want to uh, chuck some bucks towards this. Uh, and there's an event coming up at Hanging Rock on Valentine's Day, which is the, the mythical day uh, in Joan Lindsay's novel that the events, the strange events of Hanging Rock took place. One friend friend of mine has um, questioned uh, your work in this campaign and said, uh, got upset uh, that uh, the uh, around the idea of um, deleting from our cultural history a significant Australian novel and one of the f- the, the handful of significant Australian canonical uh, Australian literature written by a woman. Um, are you trying to remove Joan Lindsay from the landscape or are you trying to interrogate the landscape that Joan Lindsay's fiction has colonised? This is a like this is an interrogation. So it's it's kind of like it's inspired by say movements like Black Lives Matter that like uh, lobbied to have um, Confederate statues removed from the landscape in in the states. It's looking to say the Roads Must Fall campaign that tried to get rid of the uh, uh, Cecil Rhodes statue in South Africa. Um, it's also looking to like other ways that say Aboriginal people in Australia are often trying to contest histories by looking at like dodgy dodgy um, monuments to explorers or something like that so look my latest slogan is we need a moratorium on Miranda so you know I'm just saying that like Miranda and the picnic at Hanging Rock story has been there dominating for 50 years and it's time we just sort of like let her go for for as long as it takes to be able to start like allowing other stories to dominate that place. Amy Spears, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Richard. Uh, and as I said, for more information, you can go to www.mirandamustgo.info if you'd like to learn why Miranda must go and what the aims and goals of this campaign are. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.